0: It's time to build your momentum to start off your new year right with our evidence-based psychology and yoga podcast delivered directly to your earbuds five days a week. That's right, we are going to be replaying 60 of our top episodes five days a week, so we're going to be featuring expert insights, practical tips that will help you achieve your mental and physical wellness goals. From reducing anxiety and stress to improving your focus and concentration, the Wisdom for Wellbeing Momentum Season is the perfect companion for your yoga, mindfulness practices, and life. So tune in during your commute, while you're walking your dog, or while you're cleaning your kitchen to dive into the latest research and explore the powerful connection between your brain, body, and your best life. I'm looking forward to being in your earbuds pretty much daily as we kickstart your 2023 journey towards a happier, healthier, and more balanced you.
1: We can't deal with racism and discrimination if we're just thinking about all the beautiful pretty celebration parts and all that stuff, but we have to change something. We got to make things different. So going into our school systems and talking to them about having accurate history books having diverse faculty, um, having representation at the school. Um, So those things that racism and discrimination will not change unless there's a systemic and institutional change, but we, we have to do it. We have to be able to take steps to do things differently and have our kids involved in that process. What would that look like for them? You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart
0: to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome back to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Today, I am joined by the wonderful Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart. Dr. Lockhart is a pediatric psychologist and parent coach, as well as being the owner of a New Day Pediatric Psychology in San Antonio, Texas. She has spoken nationally at different schools, conferences, online podcasts, summits, and corporate workshops for various topics related to children's development, including ADHD, executive functioning, and racism. Today we'll actually be talking about how you talk to your highly sensitive child about racism. So Dr. Lockhart will talk you through what high sensitivity is. It's something that you might identify in your children, but it's also something that you might identify in yourself. And I think that's really important information for all of us to have because it has implications for not just how we parent, but how we might manage the environment around us. And then we dive into talking to your highly sensitive child about racism. This information is so important regardless of whether you might identify your child as highly sensitive, but specifically managing the experience of a highly sensitive child in this conversation. You know, a lot of us might feel uncomfortable about how we go about talking about racism, when we should talk about racism, what are the things that we need to know about pitching it to our child's level but without further ado let me introduce you to Dr. Anne-Louise Lockhart now. Dr. Anne-Louise thank you so much for coming and joining us on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast today. I'm delighted to be here with you.
1: I am glad you asked. I'm very excited about
0: talking to you today. Yeah, and I guess just to give a little bit of context, you know, we're going to be talking about high sensitivity and the conversations um, with children around race. But, you know, what's your background? Where is um, where's, where's your sort of history and your expertise? Because listeners may not, may not know you yet.
1: Yes. So I will start with kind of personally. So I uh, was born and raised in the Caribbean. Uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and so I come from a very small 84-square-mile island named St. Croix, Um, really teeny-weeny island, and I grew up there, so my family, several generations from there, and uh, I left when I was 18 to go to college in the States in Buffalo, New York, and so that's a very big difference, for those of you who don't know, um, because I grew up as the majority in uh, culture in on the island. And then when I went to Buffalo, I was very much the racial minority. So I got to experience what it means to not think about your culture to then being very aware of that. So that's kind of my background. And I lived throughout the states, I've lived in different states, Uh, I went to New York, and then I was in Indiana, then Ohio, then California, then Arizona, and then Texas. (laughs) So I've (laughs) I've experienced a lot of geographical regions and have an idea of big cities versus suburbs versus urban environments. Um, So that's kind of me personally and uh, married almost 22 years and uh, have two kids. I have a 10 year old daughter and an eight year old son. And uh, professionally, I'm a pediatric psychologist and parent coach. And uh, I work in San Antonio, Texas and I work with a lot of parents on variety of issues that they have so that they can feel equipped to work with their children for a variety of things, from behavioral concerns to mental health concerns to discussions about race as well, too. That's um,
0: quite an incredible history, both um, professionally as well as personally. It's very varied, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes. And it it really has given me a very good perspective about the world um, from the good and the not so good aspects of it as well, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what, I guess, what's drawn your interest in race? Was that from your own personal experience? Or was it, you know, watching your kids growing up? Or where's, um where's that emerged?
1: Well, I think as a person who is a person of color, so my background is, um, I'm mixed with uh, West African, uh, Carib Indian, which were the indigenous people of the West Indies, um, and British. And so um, primarily Black, primarily West Indian and Black. Um, but when you are a person of color, you, you, your race is kind of always in your face. <laughs> and then when you go to a place like New York and Indiana where the Klan is, a high presence, it's kind of you are just aware of it because people make you aware of it. So I didn't really have the luxury of not being aware. Um, when I was growing up, I loved who I was. I loved my ethnic background. I loved the mixture of people that I came from. Um, And so it was more of a celebration. Uh, It was not till I came to the States where it was more of a try to hide who you are, cover it up kind of thing, which is hard to do when you're visibly different than the rest of the people around you. Um, And so I, I worked through a lot of that in terms of my racial identity development and all that stuff that I learned in college um, later on, I learned what I was actually going through, but in graduate school, my first time around, when I got my first master's, I learned a lot about racial identity development, and I learned about the um, how people find who they are in terms of their ethnic identity, um, and it really was a personal as well as a professional experience. I found that uh, people didn't know a lot about it, and so I think it just kind of evolved because one is I didn't really have a choice, and then professionally, I wanted to understand more about it from a Uh, evidence-based and research perspective. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I've done talks about it off and on throughout the years, but it wasn't until recently when all the racial unrest happened in America, and it was actually, you know, put in people's faces that this is an issue still, that it became more of a demand for me to speak about it. And so then I was doing a lot of it in the past several months based on that.
0: Actually, like when you use the term racial identity development and ethnic identity, just to give listeners another resource, you actually have an online course that listeners could sign up for. Because when I was doing some of these terms were very new to me and it was a really, I think, concise course that sort of opens your idea or pardon me, your mind to this, this concept that we all have our own racial identity and, you know, expectations around who who we are and who perhaps others others are.
1: Yes, yes. That course I teamed up with another um, provider, um, uh, his organization, his practice, and we offered it. To- Uh, I think it was two years ago that it's been on his site as well now. And so it really talks a lot about um, what race is, what ethnicity is, what microaggressions are, um, cultural appropriation. So really talking about a lot of the terms that people may not be aware of um, because, yeah, we all have an identity development regardless of our race because we all have to go through different phases. But it's just that many of us don't realize it because we don't have to realize it. We're in a place of privilege. Like when I was growing up, I didn't have to think about my ethnicity because we were just proud of it. Um, It just was who you were. And it wasn't until I came to the States at 18 that I really had to think about who I was in relation to other people because I was no longer the one in control. I was no longer the one that was the majority.
0: Yeah, and I think that'll be important to talk about this idea of control and majority and, and, you know, white supremacy and sort of these terms a little bit later in the conversation. Listeners, I'll put a link to this course in the show notes so that you can definitely check in with that. But we're also going to talk about the small people in our lives, (laughs) the little kids. So I guess just to start things off, would you mind defining what high sensitivity is? Because, little kids who experience high sensitivity have, you know, a unique um, experience in this world.
1: Yes, definitely. So um, this is something that is, um, I I think a term that's been around for a while, but people don't often know a lot about. Uh, I don't remember ever getting Uh, education on highly sensitive people, highly sensitive children. When I was in graduate school, I mean, this was back in the early 2000s, but, um, you know, I think it was something that I learned on my own that I was introduced to much later. And so highly sensitive children, they're often um, seen, it's not, first of all, it's not a diagnosis. It's a personality type. And they tend to get misdiagnosed with a lot of things. Um, Autism, sensory processing disorder, Uh, anxiety, depression, Uh, so they look like a lot of those things and they actually may be more likely to be diagnosed with those but it's separate from that. Um, They can often uh, get upset or angry easily because they're very in tune with their environment, they're very in tune with the feelings of others, they're very, they're like big empaths, they like absorb other people's feelings and they're very deep thinkers many times parents will call them like very old souls because they have this existential way of thinking, like existential as in like thoughts about death. And is there a God in the universe? And what happens to our bodies when we no longer, when we cease to exist? Like they really ask questions that you're like, you're five. Why are you, why are you concerned about these things? Um, they are very, uh, they tend to withdraw and isolate and prefer to be alone because they get overly stimulated by their environment. Uh, they're very easily startled and they have a lot of difficulty with transitions. So they're just very, they seem like they're very much on edge. Uh, one big thing too, that is a huge thing that parents often don't understand and get frustrated with, is that um, they're sensitive to their internal body state. So we know about the five senses, the smell, sight, hearing, touch. But there's also another body state called interoception. And interoception is our internal body state. It's knowing when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we've had too much caffeine, (laughs) when we're overheated. Um, It's when we're sleepy. That's when we have to go to the bathroom. And high-sensitive are over-sensitive to that. So they can go from being a little hungry to dying of hunger because they're so sensitive to their body state. They, they're, the way they read their body is like turned up by 10% or hundred percent. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, so those are pretty much kind of when you look at these kids, when they're feeling pressured by time or like, hurry up, we got to leave the house why you will often see a meltdown is because they get so overloaded by that stimulation. They, they just kind of have this meltdown. Their cup is overflowing.
0: Yeah. So they're taking in a lot,
1: like these, Lots. these little bit, I mean, it, you
0: know, obviously it's something that, that exists across the lifespan, but when we think in children, like these little people are absorbing things that some adults might not even notice mm-hmm. or experience
1: both their internal experiences, but what's going on then externally. Mm-hmm, exactly. And they're very, um, because they're so sensitive to their environment and their, their senses, they, uh, they notice things that you would normally dismiss. So maybe it's a smell of a, an ingredient in a food you're cooking, or that there's something that's in the trash in the garage that, they didn't, that you didn't notice that they're really, it's obnoxious to them. Or their teacher's bad breath, their bad coffee breath, that's so nauseating to them. Like they're really they really pick up on something and it's not just that they notice it, that they're like impacted by it.
0: Yeah. So with that being impacted by things, if, if they're taking all of these, you know, different smells, different interactions, different sort of um, experiences internally on, they must get pretty exhausted.
1: Yes, they are. And that's why they'll have meltdowns, why they'll have kind of You tell them one more thing, set one more limit um, that they just explode because they they it's just too much. It's too much for them to handle. And they really have a hard time going from, say, example, they have screen time and they've been on the screen for a while and they're taking it all in. And then you say without warning, for example, okay, time to turn it off and go to bed that going from a very high stimulation to then a non-preferred thing like going to bed is going to be met with a lot of resistance and they're going to freak out. And so, yeah, that transition and that taking all in uh, and then moving from one thing to the next is really, really hard for them. And so they're very sensitive to all that stuff, uh, which means that a lot of parents, they'll often describe these kids as very inflexible, easily frustrated, very rigid, non-adaptable, they use a lot of really you know, stuck type words about these kids. And many parents have described that they feel like they're living in a home where their home has been hijacked, like their child has hijacked everybody. They're walking on eggshells and they don't feel like they can just be, they have to like watch how they make a request. They have to watch how they approach them in the morning. They don't say the wrong word. And so then they feel like, well, like who's the parent here? Like who's setting the the atmosphere here in this home environment? And it's like all the power has been given to this child because they're so afraid of setting them off.
0: And it sounds like you have some tips for managing that because you alluded yes. to, you know, that uh, no warning from put the screen away, time to go to bed, that that doesn't work very well. So what would be some of the alternatives? Like what, um, what would empower parents to relate more, I guess, connectedly to their empathetic children?
1: Yes. So that's a great question. I think for me, my approach is always, um, a lot of times parents, they want to get to the actual strategy. Just give me the strategy and how to handle this. And I, I don't do things that way. I always believe that people do best when they start from a place of being informed and educated because they understand the rationale when you actually do give them the interventions. So that's the, one of the first parts. And the other part is a mindset issue. I think we have to work on our mindset. So once we're informed, then we change our mindset, then we can do the interventions. Most behavioral challenges from our children are not about our children, it's about us. And it's about us misunderstanding how they operate. And it's not about blaming us as a parent. Some parents hear that, it's not about blaming. It's about being aware of who you are and how As our mirror neurons pick up on other people, they reflect it back. And there's a process that goes on neurologically that when we are in a state, other people will pick up on that state. And with highly sensitive kids, they really pick up on that state. So that mirroring is kind of like when you're around somebody and you feel, every time I'm in your presence, I feel good. Or this person puts me in a bad mood every time I'm around them. That's how we mirror each other. And so that's why we have to be really aware of that before we even do any interventions because then it's not gonna work because we're missing what's really going on with our kid. So once we can know that and we understand, okay, I have a highly sensitive kid, check, got it. That's the education part, okay? So then the other part of it is knowing what my mindset is about this kid. My kid is not trying to make my home miserable. They're not trying to ruin my looks and my life. Like they're just more in tune with things. So then my mindset about my child has to change, that they're not trying to be obnoxious and rude and irritable, they're just having a hard time managing them themselves. That's the mindset piece. So once we can come from a place of being informed and educated and that our mindset can be gent, more gentle and tender towards this child, then the interventions are gonna be more effective. Does that make sense?
0: That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really interesting point to sort of draw in the mirror neurons, you know, in this idea that, um, and I have heard it, I don't know if there is any any evidence around it, but that perhaps one of the physiological differences in someone who has um, the trait of high sensitivity might be that they have more mirror neurons. So they're more likely to pick up on, you know, mom or dad's mood or anyone's mood really. So then thinking about what a difference, you know, the, the mindset or the state that mom or dad or, you know the caregiver is operating in, that that's gonna have such an effect.
1: <laughs> totally, totally. And I, I don't know specifically, but it would make sense to me that maybe they do have more mirroring of neurons going on because they are so sensitive, right? Yeah. Um, and so you know, that is gonna be a big part of it. And um, one of the things that is gonna be very helpful in terms of an actual intervention, and one of the most important ones, I believe, is to hold the space for your child. So when they're having a meltdown or a tantrum, it's about holding the space and sitting with them in their distress. So if they're having a hard time and they're melting down, rather than yelling and triggering more defiance, more melting down, you just say, wow, you're having a tough time today. It seems like your cup is overflowing. Taking a deep breath, getting to their level, their eye level, breathing with them, Empathizing with them and mirroring what you want them to mirror, giving them what you want them to mirror, and just sitting with them. And so, what I often tell parents is the empathizing, first of all, listening to what they're actually saying, even if you think it's ridiculous, listening to the themes behind what they're saying, and then empathizing, which means using feeling words to reflect back what you believe they're feeling. Because if we can build our child's feeling vocabulary, it's extremely empowering. Many children are dysregulated because they don't have a, an expansive feeling vocabulary. They're very limited, sad, mad, glad. And so if I'm mad, because you made me turn off the TV, mad kids do what? They have tantrums. But instead, if they're disappointed because the good part of this show was about to start when you told me to turn it off and you gave me one minute warning, then disappointed kids may say, hey mom, I was about to like, look at why, like the earth is (laughs) round. Can I have 10 more minutes, please? Because I was really disappointed because I've been watching it all this time to wait, you know, so they can be able to express themselves because now they're disappointed rather than angry at you. And so when we can give that to them, we can really be very empowering and then we can validate, oh, you're right. I probably should have given you some time. That's fine. You could go ahead and watch it till the end of this episode. I totally get it. And so then it could be collaborative. So the gift of the gift of labeling emotions, I've
0: never thought of it as a gift before, but that's a really mm-hmm. beautiful way of packaging it to run with the metaphor.
1: Right. Because how would they know what they're feeling if we're not giving it to them? Because they're just feeling whatever they're feeling on the inside. And then when they're a highly sensitive child, they really feel it. And all they feel is this feeling must be rage because she just told me to turn off the TV Well, it might not be rage, it might just be disappointment. And so if they can be, if it can be labeled, then you can make those connections. So you can make the connection that, oh, when I didn't give you a a big enough warning, you felt pointed, so that's why you had a tantrum. We can actually make a connection between the antecedent or the triggering event, the command that we made, their feelings, and then their behaviors. So we have this triggering event, and then we have the meltdown of the tantrum. And so when that happens, kids just think, oh, you made me turn off the TV and that's why I had a tantrum. When in fact, it might just be that, oh, let's make the connection between the, the command, your feelings of being disappointed, and then your tantrum. Instead, let's do something different when you're feeling this way. You can use your, you can use your words and you can then talk about it, how you feel. Brilliant.
0: So we're sort of talking about how we kind of give parents the the capacity, the skill set to, number one, identify high sensitivity in their kids to learn what that is and the really, you know, beautiful elements of it, as well as the parts that are challenging. And then this capacity to help their children label their feelings because what they're experiencing internally is going to be strong.
1: Yeah. With
0: race, you know, we know that, that children from a young age identify race, that it's something that they, they notice, they experience. When, when should a parents start talking to their kids about race generally and does this differ for a highly sensitive child?
1: Yes, great, great question. So um, the, the research has shown that children notice racial differences as early as six months. There is actually some literature that says three months. But what we do know is that children notice when an individual appears physically different than their primary caregivers. So, regardless of their race, they just they notice. So, because they notice race as early as six months, when people say, "Oh, I don't have to talk to my kids about race because they're colorblind," that's actually not true. They're actually not colorblind. <laughs> they notice, and it's actually kind of a ridiculous statement when you think about it because we all notice it. Like. We don't, even if we're not consciously aware of it, we are noticing that people are different. You notice if someone has beautiful flaming red hair, you're noticing if someone has really porcelain color skin or very deep dark chocolate skin. Like, we do notice those things. And so, but the other part of it is that children are noticing it. And because they're noticing it as early as six months, what happens is by three years is that they start to um, associate positive and negative traits to those differences by age three. And if they're not educated and informed, or they're around a lot of racism and racist talk and stereotypical um, ideals, then by age five, they actually demonstrate racist behaviors. And they start to choose friends based on race because the ones that have the positive physical traits have positive attributes. They start to make those connections. And if you don't have, you're not part of a race that I think is good enough, then I'm going to attribute negative um, characteristics to you. And so really by kindergarten, age four or five, children can be racist. (laughs) And that's why we have to intervene and educate them. And so I think that's a really important thing that parents need to be aware of because a lot of times white parents don't have to think it but a lot of black and brown parents do because we don't have a choice, not talk to our kids about it because they are treated differently because of their race.
0: So how, how does a parent go about talking um, to their kids in an age appropriate manner about race? Where, where does the conversation begin? And, you know, you you mentioned like the racism that can be developed by kindergarten. You know, I, I hope that everyone listening to this conversation right now is like, we need to stop that. That's something that needs to shift. And, you know, I guess there has been conversation around also identifying our own racism that might be. Culturally structured as well.
1: But yeah, I guess just starting with where we start with our kids. Yes. So it starts very basic because you're not going to talk to your six month old about, you know, the oppression of Blacks and slavery. Like, that's not appropriate (laughs) because that's kind of ridiculous. (laughs) Right. Let's do a bedtime story. Let's talk about slavery. But what it's going to be is that you start to introduce them to things and people and cultures that are different from you. So it would be having baby books and board books from authors that are from different ethnic backgrounds, talking about different things in a just, it doesn't even have to be in an educational manner. It's just that if there's representation in the art and in the books, for example. So we all buy, hopefully, books for our children and toys for our children, dolls, action figures, all kinds of things. And if, having them represent a wide range of physical appearances. Having art from different backgrounds, people who represent different looking um, uh, cultures and ethnicities, movies, cartoons, movie characters, as they get into toddler age and preschool age. That's, that's how you start the conversation, is having those things so that it's just normal. It's normal to have, to be a white family and have a black doll. But it's normal to, you know, be a family, maybe you're mixed, um, you know, maybe one black, one white uh, mom and dad or whatever you know parents and then you have um, someone who is an author with of Asian descent like it's just having all of those things available so that it becomes typical and normal going to restaurants that are from different ethnic backgrounds and talking about the foods and where they come from um, going to cultural events when we can actually travel going to different places and you know going to Chinatown going to Koreatown going and getting a good authentic Italian pizza from the city in New York like just it's those kinds of things where you're introducing them to different backgrounds and it just becomes normal a normal part of your everyday living rather than staying in your own little privileged bubble where you don't ever have to introduce them to anybody it's also about having friends that are different from you and not having like a token black friend or a token Asian friend It's about having people who are variety. I've been in there, that that situation where I'm like the only person that's black among all my white friends, like that doesn't feel good. So to have the variety, whether it's in a school or a church or a club sport. So those are the, that's the way you start it. Is that just, it's just the representation and it's the exposure. That's where it really starts, especially with the really, really little ones. And it's interesting because I think that this is a really
0: important point, isn't it? You know, about, for instance, the dolls, because if I go to the local shop, the vast majority of the dolls are white, which if you're not thinking about it, if you're just grabbing the doll that ends up, I guess, perpetuating this, um, this small, small worldview that, you know, we might be introducing our children to, it might take a little bit more effort, but it's actually, when you list it, it's not that hard or rocket science, is it? It's, it's just being mindful and then being able to support the companies or you know we all have access to the world wide web now finding these resources toys and books that that are offering our children an opportunity for diversity
1: and I think that's where then as they get older then you can start educating them about you know if you're a white family start educating them about your background and your ethnicity, your race. A lot of times, unfortunately, when I meet with white clients, when I ask them about their ethnic identity and their ethnic background, they say, well, we're just white. And I'm like, what does that mean? That's not an ethnic background. It's, it's not. That's a social construct. That's a, that's a made-up term, honestly. It is. They made that up during the time of slavery when people were getting free in America. Um, and so we want to then be able to celebrate who we are and where we're from. So if you're Irish, if you're Scottish, if you're Welsh, if you're, you know, whatever, to be able to understand who your people are, where you come from, and then educate your kids on that. So a big part of it is celebrating who you are and loving who you are. And then also then celebrating other cultures with your child so that they understand who those people are, where they come from, how they came, maybe wherever you live if you have a large population of Filipinos or a large population of indigenous people, like educating your kid on who these people are, where, where um, what are they about? What did they wear? What do they speak? So it's a lot of celebration and, and enjoying what those people have to give as well as the people that you come from as well too. And then as they get older, then really talking about some of the other stuff, you know, the history of people, so like you know starting from where you're from even that if there's people that were um, treated poorly or they were um, enslaved or they were run out of the area whatever it is so that they understand the not so beautiful history of other people as well too Um, people who are different from you or your own people as well Um, that kids need to also understand that because it's not all great history And we often try to shield our kids from that, but they have to understand that and know that too.
0: And I think that's really interesting because I suppose like if I look at my history lessons growing up, that wasn't the way that the information was presented. You know, it's packaged in a certain manner. And I think we maybe as parents now need to be really mindful to take responsibility for sharing information with our children that is factually accurate, that isn't whitewashed.
1: Exactly, exactly. And most of us, I mean, I think, we could probably safely say in most countries around the world are getting a very limited history. And it's often from the part of the oppressor. Honestly, we're getting one very limited view that makes your culture, your country look good. And most countries have colonized indigenous people or people of color. And there's a very ugly history to it. And our kids need to know that all kids of all races need to know that. And that's where we start to educate our kids and actually, you know, as we're going through this, right from the celebration to the awareness to um, then the, the real history, then it's about the systemic change, honestly. We can't deal with racism and if we're just thinking about all the beautiful, pretty celebration parts and all that stuff, but we have to change something. We gotta make things different. So going into our school systems and talking to them about having accurate history books, having diverse faculty, Um, Having representation at the school. Um, So those things that racism and discrimination will not change unless there's a systemic and institutional change. But we, we have to do it. We have to be able to take steps to do things differently and have our kids involved in that process. What would that look like for them? Would
0: you mind defining, because when we talk about, you know, the institutional change and the systemic change, would you mind defining white supremacy for us? Because I think that's a term that people think, oh, no, I have no part in that. But I think that a lot of us, you know, probably need to look at and identify within ourselves, having learned it within the cultures that we've grown up in.
1: Yes, definitely. So, well, I can start first by just defining um, what racism is. So racism is when people believe that one race is superior to another. I mean, that's the, the basic definition. Um, a racist is a person who believes that their race is superior to another. I am better than you simply because I'm part of this race and you're not. And it's often assumed that the person who is racist is within a power. It was, it was in a position of power or control. And it's because not that they individually might be in control or in power, but they benefit from the system that puts them in control, or that they're the people that they come from are in a position that is more privileged. Does that make sense?
0: It makes a lot of sense. So it's if we're looking at the power structures and historic power structures, you know, um, here in Australia, you know, it's it's colonized. The the settlers came in from. We can I guess say, I'm saying in air quotes now white, <laughs> the white settlers came in kind of washing yes. that identity away um, and push the indigenous people out and maintain a power structure. So the the power and control would then sit with an individual who identifies perhaps as white or who passes as white.
1: Is that sort
0: mm-hmm. of the right way
1: of um... Yes, and it's not just that they're in control, but they believe they're better than the other simply because they're white, simply okay. because they're the superior race. And so that's where a lot of white supremacy comes in because it's simply supreme and superior to you because I'm civilized. I'm um, uh, more intelligent. I'm whatever else category it is and and characteristic. And it's putting themselves in a place to um, basically reign over the other people because they feel they're in a better position and they then establish or take power from those people who were originally there yeah and then
0: propagates that story around Mm -hmm. you know when you said culture like i guess that's a definition of what we describe as culture or what we describe as intelligence or you know we kind of um the decisions of what is acceptable are based on fitting within the power structure of um in this case the the white the white settlers Mm
1: -hmm. exactly and then then changing the narrative so that it's that oh the indigenous people those savages or they were uneducated or they murdered our people so that's why we drove them out into their own place that's that narrative it's like yeah but they were here first <laughs> what right did you have to come here well we were exploring the world right but there were people that were there already that's what happened on my island we had indigenous people columbus came and he said oh i'm going to name you the west Indies he kept thinking he kept Finding India, he named everything India and Indians. Um, and so, you know, it's 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 that whole sense of oh, I've I've discovered your island. Uh, no, because we had groups of people living here already. So it's that feeling of I have a right to name you, and name your people, because I'm supreme and more su- intelligent, more powerful than you are. And so that supremacy is a very privileged position. And that's what perpetuates racism. So the the racism that we're seeing today, it's not just an individual issue. It's an institutional issue. It's a systemic issue.
0: And with that systemic issue, I guess kind of like highlighting within that, I would hold racist beliefs within, you know, the, the frames that I've learned growing up and, you know, without examining my behaviors or my thinking patterns, that that's something that I I I guess I I obviously need to work on and probably all of us who've grown up in certain situations where there is this white supremacist power structure need to work on. How do we reflect on that and then teach our children better?
1: Yes. Uh, That's a great, great question. Because we have to make sure that especially if you are um, a person who's part of the dominant culture, that you're white, it's that a lot of people Just because you're white doesn't mean that you always feel like you benefit from being white. But the thing is that the system puts you in a place where you are in a privilege Um, because we know know it for a fact that um, uh, white people tend to get hired at a higher rate. Um, They get paid more. Um, White children are um, not penalized for the same behavior. A brown and a black child, if they're doing the same behavior, they are penalized more often than a white child for the exact same behavior. So those are all systemic issues. So although you may not directly be a a racist, you're benefiting from a system that places you in that position of privilege. And so that's where we want to really make sure that we're doing our own work that if there's any kind of prejudicial or racist ideals that you have that many people have grown up with from their own families, that we have to do, each of us have to do the work first in order to talk to our kids about it. Because if you have all these negative views about people of color, for example, and then you try to talk to your kids about being nicer and anti-racist, they're going to catch you in that inconsistency. And when we're talking about a a highly sensitive child, they're really going to catch you Because they're going to be like, well, but daddy, you said this about that person when we passed him in the street yesterday, or I saw you roll your eyes at that person, or those kinds of things, they're going to pick up on it and they're going to catch those inconsistencies. So we have to make sure we do the work and we have to make sure that we are educated as well if we're going to educate our kids about these things. Yeah. And that's why that's so important.
0: And I, I guess with that, so a person, you know, who might not be part of the dominant culture. So, you know, depending on where one's situated, that might look differently, but how does someone who isn't part of the dominant culture start this conversation around race? Because I imagine they're addressing something different.
1: Yes. Yes. And the thing is that most people of color of, um, we don't really have a choice to uh, address it with our kids. And so, um, because there's a lot of safety messages, and of course it depends on where you live and where you grew up and who you are, um, but it's a lot of talking, it's the same thing, it's the same process. It's talking about the celebration of our culture, and it's gonna be a little bit different in that sense because so often we're not able to celebrate who we are because our history books don't do that. It doesn't give us the accurate history. It actually paints us in a very negative view. Um, I don't see history books in the school that celebrate who my culture is and the great things about us. It talks about slavery and Martin Luther King. I mean, that's it. Jim Crow. It's all the negative stuff. And then, then isolating one person as someone who did something great. And so it, it doesn't talk about the inventors and the scientists and the millionaires and um, the history. Uh, it does, so it's a lot of that is about really making sure that if you're a person of color, is talking to your kid about the real history of your people and talking to your child about how to celebrate those things and how to look at the good things and the not so good things. Because they also have to understand the reality of our society and how they're going to be treated differently because of the color of their skin. That's the reality of it. And so they have to be aware of that so they can keep themselves safe, but also be given scripts in terms of how to respond when people say things that are inappropriate, that are offensive. That are little snubs against them because of their race.
0: I just really want to highlight the fact that you've brought up safety a couple of times, and that's something I've never considered talking to
1: my daughter about. Mm, yep, and that's a privilege that I yeah. have to do that. And it was a privilege for me when I was growing up on an island. I didn't have to think about my safety because of race. It wasn't until I came that I think about, oh gosh, there's there's violence against black people because they're black or growing up in Indiana, I have to be aware that I'm driving through Klan country when I go back and forth to grad school, what? You know, and that's, it's a privilege to not have to think about it. And it's, it's when you're a person of color, you do have to talk to your kids about those things. We don't have the luxury of avoiding that conversation.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess that highlights too, then that's something that, you know, I should be talking to my daughter, for instance, about our listeners who are in that position of privilege should be talking to their kids about the fact that we're not having these conversations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: How does this differ for a highly sensitive child? Like how might someone who identifies as more sensitive or maybe as a child, they don't have that identity yet, but how might they respond differently? Or how might a parent, you know, um, be mindful of the conversation they're leading, you know, let's say with a kindergartner or an elementary school kid, where you're talking a little bit more about the celebration and the history. Do you need to be
1: differentially mindful about how you introduce some of these, some of these concepts? Yes, because there's, because they're so empathic and because they feel things so deeply, they may over personalize the information you're sharing. And so if they uh, overhear you talking about police brutality, for example, or another um, Black person being shot or about, you know, the brutality of slavery or any of those kinds of things, they're going to be more um, likely to feel it very deeply and even have a really negative effect effect. Uh, um, kind of reaction to it um, through maybe bad dreams or maybe over-identifying with the victims that you're talking about, where they may become overzealous about being allies for those individuals. Um, And so they will really probably internalize that information really deeply, and it'll be harder for them to recover from that. You really share too much too soon. And so we have to be aware of that, that um, especially these kids when they're younger, they don't need to be exposed to a lot of stuff on the media. Um, they should not be uh, aware of every single shooting, every single, um, all those different things that are happening in the everyday um, news. We should really actually protect a lot of our kids in general from those things. We don't ha- they don't have to hear every single, single um, negative event that has occurred, every shooting that has occurred. But with these children, they're really gonna pick up on that if their parent is distressed, or they overhear adults talking about it and the tone of their voice and the, the inflection and how they're talking about that. So I think we just have to be more aware that they're really going to absorb those things much more deeply. And they may be overly um, impacted by it to the point where they may wanna go to the protests. They may want to um, over identify with what's going on with other people different from them. And we just have to be aware of that so that we're not giving them too much information too quickly. Okay.
0: So going slow. It sounds like titrating oh. the information a little bit more slowly than you might for someone who isn't as um as sensitive and might That's not, it. you know, take that information so deeply. Yes. Okay. And and with parents, I guess so in guiding this, is there any resources or any books that you can suggest for parents that might really help in their own reflection or in having this conversation and you know, how
1: can people work with you? What are what are the opportunities to learn here? Yes, there are tons of books that are now out there that are that that have been out there but are really um, been put more available. Um, there's I mean, it really, if you Google a lot of books on race um, and you uh, look up specifically for child de- uh, developmentally appropriate books for children because you many of the books out there you want to look for things that are talking about like celebration and education of different cultures but also the keywords
0: celebration celebration. you said a few times yeah and education
1: and and then also just historical just historical developmentally appropriate books for kids Um, on my instagram i have a lot of different resources that i've highlighted and that i've queued up in my um highlight section of my bio Um, But also there's a a book company that I've worked a lot with that I'm working a lot with called A Kid's Book About, and that's a really great place to start because they have one called A Kid's Book About Racism. And it's really well done because it just talks in very basic terms for children to just understand the basic terms of what race is and what makes people different and why people are treated differently because of their skin color. So just giving them that basic education and background could be a really good one. So um, I would just say just do your work. Make sure that you're not giving too much information about the ugliness of the history of race, but also doing things that show the beauty of it, too. It needs to be a good balance between the two.
0: I, I really like that you, you've brought up celebration a number of times because that sounds really... Yeah. Colorful and dynamic and really empowering. So a kid's book about racism was one that you recommended the kids books Mm -hmm. about, Um, and on your Instagram in the highlight section, you've got other books and resources as well as parents just Googling, you know, racism and developmentally appropriate books. Mm
1: -hmm. So where can people find you on Instagram, on Facebook? Yes. So on Instagram, I'm very active at dr.annelouise.lockhart. Um, and on Facebook at um my uh practice is called a new day pediatric psychology. And so those are the two places I'm probably most active. Uh and then they can always find stuff on my website at a S a as in sanantonio.com. So a sa.com And I have uh, lots of free downloadable PDFs. And I actually have a, a series both on Instagram and um on my website that I'll be putting up. Um about different things, helpful things to say to your child, and I have one for a, chi- um, a parent of a child who's Asian, for a parent of a child who's Latino, um, one for a Black mixed child, uh, so I have all these white children, so I have all these different scripts that could be really helpful for parents to use, because many times parents are at a loss of what to say, Um, And so I have that whole series that I've done with several other providers that we've teamed up to really say, like, these are the 10 things you can say to your white child. These are the 10 things you can say to your Asian child. And it just gives you kind of a guideline so that, you know, you don't feel like you're kind of tripping over your words a little bit and you can try to start to start, start the conversation with your child.
0: That's fantastic. I'll put links to all of um, your resources in the show notes. So listeners, if you didn't get the chance to write down with a pen, um, just head to the show notes, but that's brilliant. This idea of scripts sounds particularly empowering because, you know, for those of us who haven't actually thought about how we'll have this conversation, what a brilliant place to springboard. And then to start having these, these conversations and making sure the next generation is more informed and more connected than we might have been. Mm-hmm,
1: exactly. It's a, it's a real big gift to be able to do that. And I think that there's um, there's a lot to be said about raising children that are different than the way we were raised um, because we really need to to heal this world. We have to start with our kids so that they grow up with a different set of thoughts and ideals about people who are different than them as well, too. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and, you know, being patient in our learning and understanding as well. I think that this is such an empowering conversation, both in terms of talking through high sensitivity, something where, you know, we might um, consider our kids to be highly strong or difficult and how we can support our kids to really feel and kind of looking at that beautiful trait of the deep, deep empathy they have, but also being mindful that the way we approach conversations with these kids is going to be a little bit different than it might be for kids who don't have that trait as well as talking about how we introduce you know different board books and toys and the celebration of different cultures from an early age. Yes it was an
1: honor for me to be here and talk about this so thanks for inviting me too. Absolute
0: pleasure. Well, I hope that you found that interview as informational and as hope generating as I did. You know, we can have these conversations with our kids and support our children to move towards really being anti-racist children. You know, moving towards the future, the world that we would like to create and that we would like our children to grow up in. I think Dr. Anne-Louise's Um, suggestions around how we can introduce the concept of race in a really developmentally appropriate way is key. You know, after this episode, I ordered a few more books for our bookshelf at home, and I hope you feel inspired to do the same. Even if you don't have children, I think this information is vital because we operate in a community and no doubt at different points in your life, you will have contact with children and you'll have opportunities for different conversations and to respond, you know, to different things that might get brought up, different questions. So if this resonated with you, I would really encourage you to check out Dr. Anne Louise's work. You can visit her website, anewdaysa.com, and you can find her on Instagram at Lockhart, as well as on Facebook at A New Day Pediatric Psychology all of these links will be in the show notes, including a link to a free download for parents who have a highly sensitive child. So you might want to download that as well as her course on racism and several articles and podcasts actually that she's written around racism and raising anti-racist children, including a link to some books that she's been involved in. So I really hope you check out the show notes. They're at drkaitlin.com, and you can get all of the information there. Thank you for your time today and showing up for these important conversations. I think it's really valuable that we are all here listening, learning and teaching the next generation. I will look forward to connecting with you next week. I'm wishing you and you as well. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drkaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating, or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for well being is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia,
1: or attend your local hospital ED.